As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we begin with Chapter 4 of The House of a Thousand Candles. Chapter 4, A Voice from the Lake After the bullet shattered the window, I ran to the window and peered out into the night. The wood through which we had approached the house seemed to encompass it. The branches of a great tree brushed the panes. I was tugging at the fastening of the window when I became aware of Bates at my elbow. Uh, did something happen, sir? His unbroken calm angered me. Someone had fired at me through a window, and I had narrowly escaped being shot. I resented the unconcern with which this servant accepted the situation. Oh, nothing worth mentioning. Somebody tried to assassinate me, that's all, I said, in a voice that failed to be calmly ironical. I was still fumbling at the catch of the window. Allow me, sir, and he threw up the sash with an ease that increased my irritation. I leaned out and tried to find some clue to my assailant. Bates opened another window and surveyed the dark landscape with me. It was a shot from without, was it, sir? Of course it was. You didn't suppose I shot it myself, did you? He examined the broken pane and picked up the bullet from the table. It's a rifle ball, I should say. The bullet was half flattened by its contact with the wall. It was a cartridge ball of large caliber and might have been fired from either rifle or pistol. "'It's very unusual, sir.' 
I wheeled upon him angrily and found him fumbling with the bit of metal, a troubled look in his face. He at once continued, as though anxious to allay my fears. Quite accidental, most likely. Probably boys on the lake are shooting at ducks. I laughed out so suddenly that Bates started back in alarm. You idiot! I roared, seizing him by the collar with both hands and shaking him fiercely. You fool! Do the people around here shoot ducks at night? Do they shoot waterfowl with elephant guns and fire people through windows just for fun? I threw him back against the table so that it leaped away from him, and he fell prone on the floor. And fetch a lantern! He said nothing, but did as I bade him. We traversed a long cheerless hall to the front door. I sent him before me into the woodland. My notions of the geography of the region were the vaguest, but I wished to examine for myself the premises that evidently contained a dangerous prowler. I was very angry, and my rage increased as I followed Bates, who had suddenly retired within himself. We stood soon beneath the lights of the refectory window. The ground was covered with leaves which broke crisply under our feet. "'What lies beyond here?' I demanded. "'About a quarter mile of woods, and then the lake.' "'Go ahead,' I ordered. "'Straight to the lake.' I was soon stumbling through rough underbrush similar to that through which we had approached the house. Bates swung along confidently enough ahead of me, pausing occasionally to hold back the branches. I began to feel, as my rage abated, that I'd set out on a foolish undertaking.' I was utterly at sea as to the character of the grounds. I was following a man whom I had not seen until two hours before, and whom I began to suspect of all manner of designs upon me. It was wholly unlikely that the person who had fired into the windows would lurk about, and moreover, the light of the lantern, the crack of the leaves, and the breaking of the boughs advertised our approach loudly. I am, however, a person given to steadfastness in error, if nothing else, and I plunged along behind my guide with a grim determination to reach the margin of the lake, if for no other reason than to exercise my authority over the custodian of this strange estate. A bush slapped me sharply, and I stopped to rub the sting from my face. "'Are you hurt, sir?' asked Bates, solicitously, turning with the lantern. "'Of course not,' I snapped. "'I'm having the time of my life. Are there no paths in this jungle?' "'Not through here, sir. "'It was Mr. Glenarm's idea not to disturb the wood at all. "'He was very fond of walking through the timber. "'Not at night, I hope. "'Where are we now?' "'Quite near the lake. "'Then go on.' "'I was out of patience with Bates, with the pathless woodland, "'and, I must confess, with the spirit of John Marshall Glenarm, my grandfather. "'We came out presently upon a gravelly beach.' "'and Bates stamped suddenly on planking. "'This is the Glenarm Dock, sir, "'and that's the boathouse.' "'He waved his lantern toward a low structure "'that rose dark beside us. "'As we stood silent, peering out into the starlight, "'I heard distinctly the dip of a paddle "'and the soft gliding motion of a canoe. "'It is a boat, sir,' whispered Bates, "'hiding the lantern under his coat. "'I brushed past him and crept to the end of the dock. The paddle dipped on silently and evenly in the still water, but the sound grew fainter. A canoe is the most graceful, the most sensitive, the most inexplicable contrivance of man. With its paddle you may dip up stars along quiet shores, 
or steal into the very harbor of dreams. I knew that furtive splash instantly, and knew that a trained hand wielded the paddle. My boyhood summers in the Maine woods were not, I frequently find, wholly wasted. The owner of the canoe had evidently stolen close to the Glenarm dock, and had made off when alarmed by the noise of our approach to the wood. Have we a boat here? The boathouse is locked, and I haven't the key with me, sir, he replied, without excitement. Of course you haven't, I snapped, full of anger at his tone of irreproachable respect, and at my own helplessness. I had not even seen the place by daylight, and the woodland behind me and the lake at my feet were things of shadow and mystery. In my rage I stamped my foot. Lead the way back, I roared. I had turned toward the woodland, when suddenly there stole across the water a voice, a woman's voice, deep, musical, and deliberate. "'Really, I shouldn't be so angry if I were you,' it said, with a lingering note on the word angry. "'Who are you, and what are you doing here?' I bawled. "'I'm just enjoying a little tranquil thought,' was the drawling, mocking reply. Far out upon the water I heard the dip and glide of the canoe, and saw faintly its outline for a moment, and then it was gone. The lake, the surrounding wood, were an unknown world. The canoe, a boat of dreams. Then again came the voice. Good night, merry gentlemen. It was a lady, sir, remarked Bates, after we'd waited silently for a full minute. How clever you are, I sneered. I suppose ladies prowl about here at night, shooting ducks or into people's houses. Now that would seem quite likely, sir. I should have liked to cast him into the lake, but he was already moving away, the lantern swinging at his side. I followed him back through the woodland to the house. My spirits quickly responded to the cheering influence of the great library. I stirred the fire on the hearth into life and sat down before it, "'tired from my tramp. "'I was mystified and perplexed "'by the incident that had already marked my coming. "'It was possible, to be sure, "'that the bullet which narrowly missed my head "'in the little dining-room "'had been a wild shot "'that carried no evil intent. "'I dismissed at once the idea "'that it might have been fired from the lake. "'It had crashed through the glass "'with too much force to have come so far, "'and moreover,' I could hardly imagine even a rifle ball's finding an unimpeded right of way through so dense a strip of wood. I found it difficult to get rid of the idea that someone had taken a pot shot at me. The woman's mocking voice from the lake added to my perplexity. It was not, I reflected, such a voice as one might expect to hear from a country girl, nor could I imagine any errand that would excuse a woman's presence abroad on an October night whose cool air inspired first confidences with fire and lamp. There was something haunting in that last cry across the water. It kept repeating itself over and over in my ears. It was a voice of quality, of breeding, and charm. The voice had said, "'Good night, merry gentlemen.' In Indiana, I reflected, rustics, young or old, men or women, were probably not greatly given to salutations of just this temper. Bates now appeared. A big pardon, sir, but your room's ready whenever you wish to retire. I looked about in search of a clock. There are no timepieces in this house, 
Mr. Glenarm. Your grandfather was quite opposed to them. He had a theory, sir, that they were conducive, as he said, to idleness. He considered that a man should work by his conscience, sir, and not by the clock, the one being more exacting than the other. I smiled as I drew out my watch, as much at Bates's solemn tones and grim lean visage as at his quotation from my grandsire, but the fellow both puzzled and annoyed me. His unobtrusive black clothes, his smoothly brushed hair, his shaven face, awakened an antagonism in me. Bates, if you didn't fire that shot through the window, who did? Will you answer me on that? Yes, sir. If I didn't do it, it's quite a large question who did. I'll grant you that, sir. I stared at him. He met my gaze directly without flinching nor was there anything insolent in his tone or attitude. He continued, "'I didn't do it, sir. I was in the pantry when I heard the crash in the refectory window. The bullet came from out of doors, as I should judge, sir.' The facts and conclusions were undoubtedly with Bates, and I felt that I had not acquitted myself creditably in my effort to fix the crime on him. My abuse of him had been tactless, to say the least, and I now tried another line of attack. Of course, Bates, I was merely joking. What's your own theory of the matter? I have no theory, sir. Mr. Glenarm always warned me against theories. He said, if you'll pardon me, there was great danger in the speculative mind. The men spoke with a slight Irish accent, which in itself puzzled me. I've always been attentive to the peculiarities of speech, and his was not the brogue of the Irish servant class. Larry Donovan, who was English-born, used on occasions an exaggerated Irish dialect that was wholly different from the smooth, liquid tones of Bates. But more things than his speech were to puzzle me in this man. "'The person in the canoe. How do you account for her?' I asked. "'I haven't accounted for her, sir. There's no women on these grounds.' "'or any sort of person except ourselves. "'But there are neighbors, farmers, "'people of some kind must live along the lake. "'A few, sir. "'And then there's the school, "'quite a bit beyond your own west wall.' "'His slight reference to my proprietorship, "'my own wall, as he put it, pleased me. "'Ah, yes, there is a school. "'Girls? "'Yes. "'Mr. Pickering mentioned it. "'but the girls hardly paddle on the lake at night, "'at this season, hunting ducks. "'Should you say, Bates?' "'I don't believe they do any shooting, Mr. Glenarm. "'It's a pretty strict school, I judge, from all accounts. "'And the teachers, are they all women? "'They are the Sisters of St. Agatha, I believe they call them. "'I sometimes see them walking abroad. "'They're very quiet neighbors, "'and they go away in the summer, usually.' "'Except Sister Teresa. "'The school's her regular home, "'and there's the little chapel quite near the wall. "'The young minister lives there, "'and the gardener's the only other man on the grounds. "'So my immediate neighbors were Protestant nuns and schoolgirls, "'with a chaplain and gardener thrown in for variety. "'Still the chaplain might be a social resource. "'There was nothing in the terms of my grandfather's will "'to prevent my cultivating the acquaintance of a clergyman.' It even occurred to me that this might be a part of the game. My soul was to be watched over by a rural priest. While there being nothing else to do, 
I was to give my attention to the study of architecture. Bates, my garden housekeeper, was brushing the hearth with deliberate care. "'Show me my cell,' I said, rising, "'and I'll go to bed.' He brought from somewhere a great brass candelabrum that held a dozen lights, and explained, "'This was Mr. Glenarm's habit. He always used this one to go to bed with. I'm sure he'd wish you to have it.' I thought I detected something like a quaver in the man's voice. My grandfather's memory was dear to him, I reflected, and I was moved to compassion for him. "'How long were you with Mr. Glenarm, Bates?' I inquired, as I followed him into the hall. Five years, sir. He employed me the year you went abroad. I remember very well his speaking of it. He greatly admired you, sir.' He led the way, holding the cluster of lights high for my guidance up the broad stairway. The hall above shared the generous lines of the whole house, but the walls were white and hard to the eye. Rough planks had been laid down for a floor, and beyond the light of the candles lay a dark region that gave out ghostly echoes as the loose boards rattled under our feet. "'I hope you'll not be too much disappointed, sir,' said Bates, pausing a moment before opening a door. It's all quite unfinished, but comfortable, I should say. Quite comfortable. Open the door. He was not my host, and I did not relish his apology. I walked past him into a small sitting room that was, in a way, a miniature of the great library below. Open shelves filled with books lined the apartment to the ceiling on every hand, save where a small fireplace, a cabinet, and a table were built into the walls. In the center of the room was a long table with writing materials set in nice order. I opened a handsome case and found that it contained a set of draftsmen's instruments. I groaned aloud. Mr. Glenarm preferred this room for working. The tools were his very own. The devil they were, I exclaimed irascibly. I snatched a book from the nearest shelf and threw it open on the table. It was The Tower, its early use for purposes of defense, London. 1816. I closed it with a slam. The sleeping room is beyond, sir, I hope. Don't you hope any more, I growled, and it doesn't make any difference whether I'm disappointed or not. Certainly not, sir, he replied in a tone that made me ashamed of myself. The adjoining bedroom was small and meagerly furnished. The walls were untinted and were relieved only by prints of English cathedrals, French chateaux, and like suggestions of the best things known to architecture. The bed was the commonest iron type, and the other articles of furniture were chosen with a strict regard for utility. My trunks and bags had been carried in, and Bates asked from the door for my commands. "'Mr. Glenarm always breakfasted at 7.30, sir,' as near as he could hit it without a timepiece, and he was quite punctual. His ways were a little odd. He used to prowl about at night a good deal, and there was no following him. I fancy I shan't do much prowling, I declared, and my grandfather's breakfast hour will suit me exactly, Bates. If there's nothing further, sir? That's all. And Bates, yes, Mr. Glenarm? Of course you understand that I didn't really mean to imply that you had fired that shot at me. I beg you not to mention it, Mr. Glenarm. But it was a little queer, 
If you should gain any light on the subject, let me know. Certainly, sir. But I believe, Bates, that we better keep the shades down at night. These duck hunters hereabouts are apparently reckless, and you might attend to these now, and every evening hereafter. I wound my watch as he obeyed. I admit that in my heart I still half suspected the fellow of complicity with the person who had fired at me through the dining room window. It was rather odd, I reflected, that the shades should have been open, though I might account for this by the fact that this curious unfinished establishment was not subject to the usual laws governing orderly housekeeping. Bates was evidently aware of my suspicions, and he remarked, while drawing down the last of the plain green shades, "'Mr. Glenarm never drew them, sir. It was a saying of his, if I may repeat his words, that he liked the open. These are eastern windows, and he took a quiet pleasure in letting the light waken him. It was one of his oddities, sir.' "'To be sure. That's all, Bates.' "'He gravely bade me good-night, "'and I followed him to the outer door "'and watched his departing figure "'lighted by a single candle "'that he had produced from his pocket. "'I stood for several minutes listening to his step, "'tracing it through the hall below, "'as far as my knowledge of the house would permit. "'Then, in unknown regions, "'I could hear the closing of doors "'and drawing of bolts.' Verily, my jailer was a person of painstaking habits. I opened my traveling case and distributed its contents on the dressing table. I had carried through all my adventures a folding leather photograph holder, containing portraits of my father and mother and of John Marshall Glenarm, my grandfather, and this I set up on the mantel in the little sitting room. I felt tonight as never before how alone I was in the world and a need for companionship and sympathy stirred in me. It was with a new and curious interest that I peered into my grandfather's shrewd old eyes. He used to come and go fitfully at my father's house, but my father had displeased him in various ways that I need not recite, and my father's death had left me with an estrangement which I had widened by my own acts. Now that I had reached Glenarm, my mind reverted to Pickering's estimate of the value of my grandfather's estate. Although John Marshall Glenarm was an eccentric man, he had been able to accumulate a large fortune, and yet I had allowed the executor to tell me that he had died comparatively poor. In so readily accepting the terms of the will, and burying myself in a region of which I knew nothing, I had cut myself off from the usual channels of counsel. If I left the place to return to New York, I should simply disinherit myself. At Glenarm I was— and there I must remain to the end of the year. I grew bitter against Pickering as I reflected upon the ease with which he had got rid of me. I had always satisfied myself that my wits were as keen as his, but I wondered now whether I had not stupidly put myself in his power. We'll return with Chapter 5 right after this sponsor message. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. 
You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And now, back to our show. Chapter 5. A Red tam O'Janter I looked out on the bright October morning with a renewed sense of isolation. Trees crowded about my windows, many of them still wearing their festal colors, scarlet, brown, and gold, with the bright green of some sulking companions standing out here and there with startling vividness. I put on an old corduroy outing suit and heavy shoes, ready for a tramp abroad, and went below. The great library seemed larger than ever when I beheld it in the morning light. I opened one of the French windows and stepped out on a stone terrace where I gained a fair view of the exterior of the house, which proved to be a modified Tudor, with battlements and two towers. One of the latter was only half finished, and to it and to other parts of the house the workman's scaffolding still clung. Heaps of stone and piles of lumber were scattered about in great disorder. The house extended partly along the edge of a ravine, through which a slender creek ran toward the lake. The terrace became a broad balcony immediately outside the library, and beneath it the water bubbled pleasantly around heavy stone pillars. Two pretty rustic bridges spanned the ravine, one near the front entrance, the other at the rear. My grandfather had begun his house on a generous plan, but buried as it was among the trees, it suffered from lack of perspective. However, on one side toward the lake was a fair meadow, broken by a water tower, and just beyond the west dividing wall I saw a little chapel, and still further, in the same direction, the outlines of the buildings of St. Agatha's were vaguely perceptible in another strip of woodland. The thought of gentle nuns and schoolgirls as neighbors amused me. All I asked was that they should keep to their own side of the wall. I heard behind me the careful step of Bates. "'Good morning, Mr. Glenarm. I trust you rested quite well, sir?' His figure was as austere, his tone as respectful and colorless as by night. The morning light gave him a pallid cast. He suffered my examination coolly enough. His eyes were, indeed, the best thing about him. "'This is what Mr. Glenarm called the platform. I believe it's in Hamlet, sir.' I laughed aloud. "'Elsinore, a platform before the castle.' "'It was one of Mr. Glenarm's little fancies, you might call it. "'And the ghost? Where does the murdered majesty of Denmark lie by day?' "'I fear it wasn't provided, sir. "'As you see, Mr. Glenarm, the house is quite incomplete. 
"'My late master had not carried out all his plans.' "'Bates did not smile. "'I fancied he never smiled, "'and I wondered whether John Marshall Glenarm "'had played upon the man's lack of humor. "'My grandfather had been possessed "'of a certain grim, ironical gift at jesting, "'and quite likely he had amused himself "'by experimenting upon his serving man. "'You may breakfast when you like, sir.' "'And thus admonished, I went into the refectory. "'A newspaper lay at my plate. "'It was the morning's issue of a Chicago daily. "'I was then, not wholly out of the world,' I reflected, "'scanning the headlines. "'Your grandfather rarely examined the paper. "'Mr. Glenarm was more particularly interested in the old times. "'He wasn't what you might call up-to-date, "'if you will pardon the expression.' "'You're quite right about that, Bates.' He was a medievalist in his sympathies. "'Thank you for that word, sir. I frequently heard him apply it to himself. The plain omelette was a great favorite with your grandfather. I hope it's to your liking, sir.' "'It's excellent, Bates, and your coffee is beyond praise.' "'Thank you, Mr. Glenarm. One does what one can, sir.' He had placed me so that I faced the windows, an attention to my comfort and safety which I appreciated. The broken pane told the tale of the shot that had so narrowly missed me the night before. "'I'll repair that today, sir,' Bates remarked, seeing my eyes upon the window. "'You know that I'm to spend a year on this place. I assume that you understand the circumstances,' I said, feeling it wise that we should understand each other. "'Quite so, Mr. Glenarm. "'I'm a student, you know, and all I want is to be left alone.' This I threw in to reassure myself rather than for his information. It was just as well, I reflected, to assert a little authority, even though the fellow undoubtedly represented Pickering and received orders from him. In a day or two, as soon as I've gotten used to this place, I shall settle down to work in the library. You may give me breakfast at 7.30, luncheon at 1.30, and dinner at 7. Those were my master's hours, sir. "'Very good. And I'll eat anything you please, except mutton broth, meat pie, and canned strawberries. Strawberries in tins, Bates, are not well calculated to lift the spirit of man.' "'I quite agree with you, sir, if you'll pardon my opinion.' "'And the bills? They are provided for by Mr. Pickering. He sends me an allowance for the household expenses. "'So you are to report to him, are you, as heretofore?' I blew out a match with which I had lighted a cigar and watched the smoking end intently. I believe that's the idea, sir. It is not pleasant to be under compulsion, to feel your freedom curtailed, to be conscious of espionage. I rose without a word and went into the hall. You may like to have the keys, said Bates, following me. There's two for the gates in the outer wall and one for the St. Agatha's gate. They're marked, as you see, and here's the hall-door key and the boathouse key that you asked for last night. After an hour spent in unpacking, I went out onto the grounds. I had thought it well to wire Pickering of my arrival, and I set out for Annandale to send him a telegram. My spirit lightened under the influences of the crisp air and cheering sunshine. What had seemed strange and shadowy at night was clear enough by day. 
I found the gate through which we had entered the grounds the night before without difficulty. The stone wall was assuredly no flimsy thing. It was built in a thoroughly workmanlike manner, and I mentally computed its probable cost with amazement. There were, I reflected, much more satisfactory ways of spending money than in building walls around Indiana Forest. But the place was mine, or as good as mine, and there was no manner of use in quarreling with the whims of my dead grandfather. At the expiration of a year I could tear down the wall if I pleased, and as to the incomplete house, that I should sell or remodel to my liking. On the whole, I settled into an amiable state of mind. My perplexity over the shot of the night before was passing away under the benign influences of blue sky and warm sunshine. A few farm folk passed me on the highway and gave me a good morning in the fashion of the country, inspecting my knickerbockers at the same time with frank disapproval. I reached the lake and gazed out upon its quiet waters with satisfaction. At the foot of Annandale's main street was a clock where several small steam craft and a number of cat boats were being dismantled for the winter. As I passed, a man approached the dock in a skiff, landed, and tied his boat. He started toward the village at a quick pace, but turned and eyed me with rustic directness. "'Good morning,' I said. "'Any ducks about?' He paused, nodded, and fell into step with me. "'No, not enough to pay for the trouble.' "'I'm sorry for that. I'd hoped to pick up a few.' "'I guess you're a stranger in these parts,' he remarked, eyeing me again. "'My knickerbockers are no doubt marking me as an alien.' Uh, "'Quite so. My name is Glenarm, and I've just come.' "'I thought you might be him. We've rather been expecting you here in the village. I'm John Morgan, caretaker of the resorter's houses up on the lake.' "'I suppose you knew my grandfather?' "'Well, yes. You might say as we did, or you might say as we didn't. He wasn't just the sort that you got next to in a hurry. He kept pretty much to himself.' He built a wall there to keep us out, but he needn't have troubled himself. We're not the kind around here to meddle, and you may be sure the summer people never bothered him. There was a tone of resentment in his voice, and I hastened to say, I'm sure you're mistaken about the purposes of that wall. My grandfather was a student of architecture. It was a hobby of his. The house and wall were in the line of his experiments, and to please his whims. I hope the people of the village won't hold any hard feelings against his memory or against me. Why, the labor there must have been a good thing for the people hereabouts. It ought to have been, said the man, gruffly. But that's where the trouble comes in. He brought a lot of queer fellows here under contract to work for him. Italians or Greeks or some sort of foreigners. They built the wall. And he had them at work inside for half a year. He didn't even let them out for air. "'and when they finished his job, "'he loaded them onto a train one day "'and hauled them away. <sighs> "'That was quite like him, I'm sure,' I said, "'remembering with amusement "'my grandfather's secretive ways. "'I guess he was a crank, all right,' "'said the man, conclusively. "'It was evident that he did not care "'to establish friendly relations "'with the resident of Glenarm. "'He was about forty, light, "'with a yellow beard and pale blue eyes. "'He was dressed roughly, "'and wore a shabby soft hat. "'Well, I suppose I'll have to assume responsibility "'for him and his acts,' I remarked, "'piqued by the fellow's surliness. "'We had reached the center of the village, "'and he left me abruptly, "'crossing the street to one of the shops. 
I continued on to the railway station, where I wrote and paid for my message. The station master inspected me carefully as I searched my pockets for change. "'You want your telegrams delivered at the house?' he asked. "'Yes, please,' I answered, and he turned away to his desk of clicking instruments without looking at me again. It seemed wise to establish relations with the post office, so I made myself known to the girl who stood at the delivery window. "'You already have a box.' she advised me. There's a boy carries the mail to your house. Mr. Bates hires him. Bates had himself given me this information, but the girl seemed to find pleasure in imparting it with a certain severity. I then bought a cake of soap at the principal drug store and purchased a package of smoking tobacco, which I did not need, at a grocery. News of my arrival had evidently reached the villagers, I was conceited enough to imagine that my presence was probably of interest to them. But the station master, the girl at the post office, and the clerks in the shops treated me with an unmistakable cold reserve. There was a certain evenness of the chill which they visited upon me, as though a particular degree of frigidity had been determined in advance. I shrugged my shoulders and turned toward Glenarm. My grandfather had left me a cheerful legacy of distrust among my neighbors the result, probably, of importing foreign labor to work on his house. The surly Morgan had intimated as much, but it did not greatly matter. I had not come to Glenarm to cultivate the rustics, but to fulfill certain obligations laid down in my grandfather's will. I was, so to speak, on duty, and I much preferred that the villagers should let me alone. Comforting myself with these reflections, I reached the wharf, where I saw Morgan sitting with his feet dangling over the water, "'smoking a pipe. "'I nodded in his direction, "'but he pretended not to see me. "'A moment later he jumped onto his boat "'and rowed out into the lake. "'When I returned to the house, "'Bates was at work in the kitchen. "'This was a large, square room "'with heavy timbers showing in the walls "'and low ceiling. "'There was a great fireplace "'having an enormous chimney "'and fitted with a crane and bobs, "'but for practical purposes "'a small range was provided.' Bates received me placidly. "'Yes, it's an unusual kitchen, sir. Mr. Glenarm copied it from an old kitchen in England. He took quite a pride in it. It is a pleasant place to sit in the evening, sir.' He showed me the way below, where I found that the cellar extended under every part of the house and was divided into large chambers. The door of one of them was heavy oak, bound in iron, with a barred opening at the top. A great iron hasp with a heavy padlock and grilled area windows gave further the impression of a cell, and I fear that at this, as at many other things in the curious house, I swore, if I did not laugh, thinking of the money my grandfather had expended in realizing his whims. The room was used, I noted with pleasure, as a depository for potatoes. I asked Bates whether he knew my grandfather's purpose in providing a cell in his house. That, sir, was another of the dead master's ideas. He remarked to me once that it was just as well to have a dungeon in a well-appointed house. His humor again, sir, and it comes in quite handy for the potatoes. In another room I found a curious collection of lanterns of every conceivable description, grouped on shelves, and next door to this was a storeroom filled with brass candlesticks of many odd designs. I shall not undertake to describe my sensations as, peering about with a candle in my hand, the vagaries of John Marshall Glenarm's mind 
were further disclosed to me. It was almost beyond belief that any man with such whims should ever have had the money to gratify them. I returned to the main floor and studied the titles of the books in the library, finally smoking a pipe over a very tedious chapter in an exceedingly dull work on Norman revivals and influences. Then I went out, assuring myself that I should get steadily to work in a day or two. It was not yet eleven o'clock, and time was sure to move deliberately within the stone walls of my prison. The long winter lay before me in which I must study perforce, and just now it was pleasant to view the landscape in all its autumn splendor. Bates was soberly chopping wood at a rough pile of timber at the rear of the house. His industry had already impressed me. He had the quiet ways of an ideal serving man. "'Well, Bates, you don't intend to let me freeze to death, do you? There must be enough in the pile there to last all winter.' "'Yes, sir. I'm just cutting a little more of the hickory, sir. Mr. Glenarm always preferred it to beech or maple. We only take out the old timber. The summer storms eat into the wood pretty bad, sir.' "'Oh, yeah, hickory, to be sure. I've heard it's the best firewood.' "'That's very thoughtful of you.' "'I turned next to the unfinished tower in the meadow "'from which a windmill pumped water to the house. "'The iron frame was not wholly covered with stone, "'but material for the remainder of the work lay scattered at the base. "'I went on through the woods to the lake and inspected the boathouse. "'It was far more pretentious than I had imagined from my visit in the dark. "'It was of two stories, the upper half being a cozy lounging room "'with wide windows and a fine outlook over the water. The unplastered walls were hung with Indian blankets. There were lounging chairs, and a broad seat under the windows, colored matting on the floor, and a few Navajo prints gave further color to the place. I followed the pebbly shore to the stone wall where it marked the line of the school grounds. The wall, I observed, was of the same solid character here as along the road. I tramped beside it, reflecting that my grandfather's estate, in the heart of the Republic, would someday give the lie to foreign complaints that we have no ruins in America. I had assumed that there was no opening in the wall, but halfway to the road I found an iron gate, fastened with chain and padlock, by means of which I climbed to the top. The pillars at either side of the gate were of huge dimensions and were higher than I could reach. An intelligent forester had cleared the wood in the school grounds, which were of the same general character as the Glenarm estate. The little Gothic church near at hand was built of stone similar to that used in Glenarm House. As I surveyed the scene, a number of young women came from one of the school buildings and, forming in twos and fours, walked back and forth in a rough path that led to the chapel. A sister clad in a brown habit lingered near or walked first with one and then another of the students. It was all very pretty and interesting, and not at all the ugly school for paupers I had expected to find. The students were not the charity children I had carelessly pictured. They were not so young, for one thing, and they seemed to be apparelled decently enough. I smiled to find myself adjusting my scarf and straightening my collar as I beheld my neighbors for the first time. As I sat thus on the wall, I heard the sound of angry voices back of me on the Glenarm side, and a crash of underbrush marked a flight and pursuit. I crouched down on the wall and waited. In a moment a man plunged through the wood and stumbled over a low-hanging vine and fell, not ten yards from where I lay. To my great surprise it was Morgan, my acquaintance of the morning. 
He rose, cursed his ill luck, and hugging the wall close, ran toward the lake. Instantly the pursuer broke into view. It was Bates, evidently much excited and with an ugly cut across his forehead. He carried a heavy club, and, after listening for a moment for the sounds of the enemy, he hurried after the caretaker. It was not my row, although I must say it quickened my curiosity. I straightened myself out, threw my legs over the school side of the wall, and lighted a cigar, feeling cheered by the opportunity the stone barricade offered for observing the world. As I looked off toward the little church, I found two other actors appearing on the scene. A girl stood in the little opening of the wood, talking to a man. Her hands were thrust into the pockets of her covert coat. She wore a red tam o'shanter, and that made a bright bit of color in the wood. They were not more than twenty feet away, but a wild growth of young maples lay between us, screening the wall. Their profiles were toward me, and the tones of the girl's voice reached me clearly as she addressed her companion. He wore a clergyman's high waistcoat, and I assumed that he was the chaplain whom Bates had mentioned. I am not by nature an eavesdropper, but the girl was clearly making a plea of some kind, and the chaplain's stalwart figure awoke in me an antagonism that held me to the wall. If he comes here, I shall go away, so you may as well understand it and tell him. I shan't see him under any circumstances, and I'm not going to Florida or California or anywhere else in a private car, no matter who chaperones it. Certainly not, said the chaplain. You understand that I'm only giving you his message. He thought it best. Not to write to me or Sister Teresa? interrupted the girl contemptuously. What a clever man he is! And how unclever I am! said the clergyman, laughing. Well, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to present his message. She smiled, nodded, and turned swiftly toward the school. The chaplain looked after her for a few moments, then walked away soberly toward the lake. He was a young fellow, clean-shaven and dark, and with a pair of shoulders that gave me a twinge of envy. I could not guess how great a factor that vigorous figure was to be in my own affairs. As I swung down from the wall and walked toward Glenarm House, my thoughts were not with the athletic chaplain, but with the girl, whose youth was, I reflected, marked by her short skirt, the unconcern with which her hands were thrust into the pockets of her coat, and the irresponsible tilt of the tam o'shanter. There is something jaunty, a suggestion of spirit and independence in a tam o'shanter, particularly a red one. If the red tam o'shanter expressed, so to speak, the keynote of St. Agatha's, the proximity of the school was not such a bad thing after all. In high good humor, and with a sharp appetite, I went in to lunch. We'll return with Chapter 6 and 7 next week at 1001 Stories for the Road. I hope you're enjoying the story as much as I am, and I can't wait to find out why Bates was chasing Morgan and how Bates got that cut on his head. If you have a few minutes, please take time and send us a review, Apple listeners. 1001 Stories for the Road loves reviews. We also love sponsors at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For about the price of a blended cup of coffee, you can provide monthly support to this show, and that monthly support is very much appreciated. Thanks, everyone, for being with us, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.